Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Trump Scorecard. I'm your host, Jesse Burney, and every week I bring you the worst and weirdest things the Donald Trump presidency has to offer. Why do I do it? Because this is not normal. This week, I'll be speaking with Hunter Blair from the Economic Policy Institute about Trump's plans to weaken regulations against Wall Street. If you've been listening to the podcast for the last few weeks, I hope you'll notice the sound is much, much better this week. I got a new mic and I could not be more excited. So let's get started. So after the first two really insane weeks, this week, honestly, the White House seemed a little bit subdued. I think they're reeling from all the protests, from the backlash on the Muslim ban, and also backlash from the constant lying we've seen from them, not just from President Trump, but from uh, the press secretary, Sean Spicer, from Kelly Conway, his, his former campaign manager. These guys just lie all the time, and they're getting called on it a lot. You know, the White House is plagued by infighting. I've seen story after story uh, with White House sources attacking not only each other, but also President Trump himself. Uh, I've seen stories on everything from Trump insisting that his national security briefing be uh, only one page long with no more than nine bullet points to complaining that hand towels on Air Force One aren't soft enough. Uh, There was a story about him lounging around in his bathrobe when he leaves the Oval Office at 6.30 every day. The Huffington Post had a really good roundup of all these stories. I'll link to that on the website. Uh, That's thetrumpscorecard.org. Links to stories from the whole podcast will be up there. You know, this is a White House in complete and total disarray, and they are just constantly on the defensive. And the president himself seems to be in full meltdown mode. You know, a lot of people, a lot of critics talk about how hard it is to focus on any one thing he does when there's just sort of so much coming at you at once. That was true of the campaign, and it's certainly true of him as president. And, you know, I think the nature of this podcast reflects that, Uh, you know, because we can't just focus on any one thing he does. I think it's important to have that record of all these little terrible and, and strange things he does. But I don't think that's a deliberate strategy on Donald Trump's part. I think it really is just how his brain works. I mean, look, I'm not a psychiatrist and I'm not a psychologist and I'm not going to try to diagnose Donald Trump. That honestly sounds terrifying. But if you just listen to him speak or you read his tweets, it's pretty clear that this guy has a lot of trouble keeping it together. Uh, There was a great example of this uh, Wednesday. Uh, He tweeted this on Wednesday morning. Mark? Daughter Ivanka has been treated so unfairly by Nordstrom. She is a great person, always pushing me to do the right thing. Terrible. Speaking of exploiting your children, that's my eight-year-old daughter. She'll be the voice of Trump's tweets for this episode. Look, this was extraordinarily outrageous. When you are the president, you don't get to use that position to advertise your family business. And remember, Nordstrom, it's not the only target here. Anyone who carries or could carry her clothing line heard this message loud and clear. Anyone who does any business with his family heard this message. If you mess with our money, the president will come after you. You know, Trump already uh, made a habit of praising or condemning companies for, you know, bringing jobs back or, or sending jobs away. And that's okay. But, you know, he's taken credit for jobs. 
uh, that have nothing to do with him, that were, you know, announcements that actually were from years earlier and he took credit for it. And that's, you know, an obnoxious thing to do. But, you know, you can see the stock prices on these companies rise or fall based on whether he praises or condemns them. So he knows the power he has. And to use his public office and that power to enrich a family member, that is the very definition of corruption. Imagine if this were President Hillary Clinton calling out a company that chose to no longer do business with Chelsea. It would be the top story for weeks. There would be wall-to-wall coverage. You know, and there's another weird thing about this tweet. He tweeted it at 10.51 a.m. on Wednesday morning, right? And according to his official schedule, and there's a link to that on the website too, his daily intelligence briefing started at 10.30 that morning. So either he gets a very brief intelligence briefing, which is possible. We know he likes one page with nine bullet points, but you think it would take more than 20 minutes to go through those bullet points. Or he was tweeting about Nordstrom dropping Ivanka during his daily intelligence briefing. Either way, honestly, you should be terrified. Look, I always try to give you a way to take action in the first segment. And in this case, I I want you to try to join the fun and, and get under his skin. Because, you know, I think it really makes a difference in how he does. I think you know, all the the protests and stuff got under his skin and and really slowed him down this week. So one thing people have been doing is sending a postcard to the White House and addressing them to President Bannon, because people have been suggesting that Bannon is the mastermind and Trump already has been angry about that. So, you know, join the fun. This sounds like a, a good time. So write a postcard to the White House, send it to President Bannon, you know, ask him to to stop being terrible, but definitely send it to President Bannon. Have a good time because this stuff actually bothers him. Let's do an update on the big story from last week, Trump's Muslim ban. As you've probably heard, a federal judge in Washington state uh, stayed Trump's entire order. That was on top of other stays that attacked individual pieces of the ban. And this decision by this judge sent Trump into an utter tailspin. He viciously attacked this judge. And I want to capture the viciousness and the cruelty of what Trump said. And so I'm going to turn again to my daughter, who I think just really, really nails Trump's cruelty here. What is our country coming to when a judge can halt a homeland security travel ban and anyone, even with bad intentions, can come into the U.S.? He goes on. Because the ban was lifted by a judge... Many very bad and dangerous people may be pouring into our country. A terrible decision. And then he says, Just cannot believe a judge would put our country in such peril. If something happens, blame him and court system. People pouring in. Bad. Look, obviously a president is going to disagree with a judge who rules against his administration. There's nothing unusual about that. But he specifically said this judge is putting the country in peril. First of all, no, he isn't. If you listened last week, you know that Trump's bans are much more likely to increase the threat from terrorism in the long term. Hell, in the short term, too. Trump is the one who's endangering Americans with his policies that give terrorists a perfect recruiting tool. And think about how Trump's supporters react when he calls someone out like this. Like during the campaign, during his rallies, he would criticize individual reporters and his fans would go up to the press pen and scream at those reporters. 
Some of them needed security when they traveled. So when Trump says this judge is literally putting Americans in danger, how do you think his most fanatical Islamophobic fans are going to react to that? You know, it's one thing to disagree with a judge, and it's another thing to attack him. Think about the checks and balances that make our government work. Trump doesn't believe in those. He doesn't, I don't even think he understands them. He doesn't think there should be checks on his power. And he didn't just attack the judge. He also attacked the press. Listen to this. It's gotten to a point where it's not even being reported. And in many cases, the very, very dishonest press doesn't want to report it. They have their reasons, and you understand that. Look, I have plenty of criticisms of the American press. If you follow me on Twitter, you know I complain about the media all the time. And one of those complaints is the way they cover terrorism, because terrorism against white people gets a lot of coverage, and terrorism against brown people, not nearly as much. I mean, most victims are uh, of terrorism are Muslims who live in the Middle East. But Trump's criticism is ridiculous. I mean, PolitiFact rated pants on fire. The media gives blanket coverage, wall-to-wall coverage of terrorist attacks. That's why terrorism works. Remember, Trump says he's keeping Americans safe with his ban, and he says terrorists are the enemy. But this week, he really showed his hand. We know who his real enemies are. It's not terrorists. It's judges. It's the press. That's who the President of the United States wants to defeat. Think for a moment about what that means for America. Moving on, Trump signed three new executive orders on Thursday, and this is from an ABC News story uh, on Thursday, February 9th, uh, and this is Trump speaking. First, I'm directing Department of Justice and Homeland Security to undertake all necessary and lawful action to break the back of the criminal cartels that have spread across our nation and are destroying the blood of our youth and other people, many other people, said Trump. Secondly, I'm directing Department of Justice to form a task force on reducing violent crime in America, the president added. And thirdly, I'm directing the Department of Justice to implement a plan to stop crime and crimes of violence against law enforcement officers, he said. It's a shame what's been happening to our great, truly great law enforcement officers. That's going to stop as of today. Look, these sound pretty innocuous on their face, right? Break the cartels, a task force to stop violent crime, stopping violence against police officers. These sound like laudable goals, right? Cartels are bad. Violent crime is bad. Violence against police is bad. But think for a second of the implications here. First of all, this is based on a false narrative, one that Trump has been pushing since the campaign. He has said over and over again that violent crime is at an all-time high, and this is demonstrably, demonstrably false. It's been dropping for years. There's been a small rise in the last couple of years, but we're in an era where crime is at an historic low. And let's be honest what the police officer executive order is about. It's not about protecting police officers. It's about Trump's hate for Black Lives Matter. Look, police officers are already protected by the strongest laws. If you attack a police officer you are going to be prosecuted. This is about taking action against Black Lives Matter and other protesters. It's about freedom of speech and what Trump can do to suppress it. 
Let's do some quick hits before we get to our big story of the week. Here's something I I missed the first week of the podcast. This is from the Washington Examiner, a conservative paper, on January 25th. The Trump administration on Wednesday indicated it would kill any chance of reviving former President Obama's expansion of federal overtime pay rules, with a court filing suggesting that it may withdraw a White House appeal of a federal court's invalidation of the rule. So right now, workers are entitled to overtime pay unless they can be classified as having managerial duties, unless they make less than $23,000. Then even if you classify them as a manager, they can still get overtime. The Obama rule was going to raise that number to $47,000, and that would give millions more people access to overtime pay they've earned. A judge ruled that the change was too big and that Obama needed Congress to make that rule. Now, Obama opposed that ruling, but he managed somehow not to attack the judge on Twitter. And Trump is not going to appeal the ruling. So the judge's ruling will stand with no defense. And what this is going to do is it's going to take money out of the pockets of millions of hardworking people who make less than $47,000 a year and work long hours. That's who Trump is hurting. This is from the New York Times on February 4th. In his first days as President Trump's pick to lead the Federal Communications Commission, Ajit Pai has aggressively moved to roll back consumer protection regulations created during the Obama presidency. Mr. Pai took a first swipe at net neutrality rules designed to ensure equal access to content on the internet. He stopped nine companies from providing discounted high-speed internet service to low-income individuals. He withdrew an effort to keep prison phone rates down, and he scrapped a proposal to break open the cable box market. Let's go through these one by one. Um, So I don't want to get too deep into net neutrality details. It gives me a headache. But scrapping it will basically let your ISP, your internet service provider, charge, for example, Netflix more money to deliver you the movies at the speed they do and choke the bandwidth if Netflix refuses to pay. And obviously, those costs would get passed on to you. He's also trying to stop discounts that help rural and poor families from getting high-speed internet access. I can't imagine why he would do that. He's letting companies continue to gouge prisoners to have phone calls. And by the way, contacts with family help make prisoners less likely to recommit crimes when they get out, which means that this policy will actually increase crime. And he wants to let companies keep forcing you to buy their cable boxes. So if you have Comcast cable and, you know, you have to use their box and uh, they charge you some exorbitant amount to rent that box month after month, you have to keep doing that because of his decision. You can't go on Amazon and buy your own cable box. And last, let's listen to Trump try to make a joke. He isn't very good at this. State Senator in Texas, it was was talking about introducing legislation to require conviction before we could receive that forfeiture money. Can you believe that? And I told him that the cartel would build a monument to him in Mexico if he could get that legislation. Who's the back. state senator? Do you want to give his name? We'll destroy his career. <laughs> Trump doesn't really have a, a sense of humor, so when he jokes about something like that, it just kind of comes across as mean. And the legislator he's talking about, by the way, is a Republican. What she's trying to do is get police departments to stop taking people's property before they're convicted of a crime. Did you even know that the police could do that? It's called asset forfeiture. They can just accuse you of a crime and take your property and sell it. 
Trump wants to destroy a legislator's career for suggesting that we do something about that. Like I said, it's not a great joke. Time for our big story of the week. This is from the Washington Post, February 3rd. President Trump on Friday launched a broad effort to ease regulations on Wall Street, setting up what is likely to be a protracted battle over how to unwind rules put in place after the last financial crisis. In an executive order, Trump ordered a review of the laws and regulations that govern the U.S. financial system in an opening bid to upend 2010's financial overhaul law known as Dodd-Frank. So, you remember that Dodd-Frank was a response to the 2008 economic collapse. These giant investment banks and insurance companies, they fell apart because they didn't have the money to cover the losses they suffered after the housing bubble burst. Dodd-Frank was built to prevent a future collapse. So what happens if Dodd-Frank goes away? If all of it got undone, you know, without really uh, any any other changes, yeah, you know, we, we, we're basically taking ourselves back to pre-crisis era banking which is obviously not great. <laughs> That's Hunter Blair. He's a budget analyst at the Economic Policy Institute. And I asked him what Trump's executive order does. The executive order basically just told the secretary... That's the Treasury secretary. ...to look at sort of, you know, the regulations contained in Dodd-Frank and think about which ones are, you know, unduly burdensome to them. Um, so it's actually a, a fairly vague executive order. Um, and I, th I think it's main, the main thing from it is just a signal uh, from the administration that they're going to be, you know, as Trump said, you know, cutting a lot of regulations out of Dodd-Frank. So the idea is to make Dodd-Frank as weak as he possibly can. Dodd-Frank essentially protects the economy by declaring big banks and other institutions too big to fail, or as they say, systematically important financial institutions, or CIFIs. It basically said that they, well, let me let Hunter explain. They sort of said, okay, these, these big banks, they need to have living wills. They need to have, you know, some document that sort of says, you know, how will this be like how will this enormous bank be unwound in the event that um, it's bankrupt? And to do so, it gave basically orderly liquidation authority to the um, FDIC. And so it basically is, it lets the FDIC uh, treat these uh, CIFIs the same way it treats like the small banks that go bust. Um, that are covered by deposit insurance. You know, it has the ability to sort of, you know, take out loans from the treasury so that it can basically unwind this bank in a way that doesn't create a broad financial panic. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation is the body that protects your deposits in case your bank fails. Now, it also protects the economy from the failure of huge banks. Take that away, and our economy is in real danger of another collapse. But that's not all Dodd-Frank did, and it's not all Trump and the Republicans in Congress are targeting. It also created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That's the agency that Elizabeth Warren conceived of and designed. And the point of the CFPB is to protect consumers from financial companies. You may have noticed in the last few years your credit card statements have gotten simpler and make more sense. 
That's the CFPB. Before them? Prior to Dodd-Frank, you know, it just wasn't really clearly a priority for any particular regulator. And so now we have, uh, you know, one regulator whose sole job is make sure, you know, consumers are protected in the financial industry. And they've, you know, so far in their existence, you know, they have something like 12, uh, I can't remember if it's a million or a billion off the top of my head, like 12 uh, million in like refunds to consumers. I checked. It's 12 billion. The CFPB has returned 12 billion dollars to consumers. And that's not all they've done. They were, you know, the, 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 the regulatory agency that uh, took on Wells Fargo recently when Wells Fargo was, you know, creating fake accounts for their customers and racking up fees on those accounts. So they got people refunds and they fined Wells Fargo for doing that. But Trump and the GOP, they want to do everything they can to weaken the CFPB, if not kill it. One thing that obviously you could do is, you know, you put in a new director um, that would just be, you know, incredibly lax on actually going after uh, banks that defraud their consumers. Um, and then barring that, you know, they, they, there's a lot of push to make it like a broad bipartisan panel, um, which would similarly sort of uh, keep the CFPB from being a, an aggressive check on banks. It would end up kind of like the Federal Election Commission is now, run by three GOP commissioners and three Democratic commissioners. They can never decide on anything important, so the commission has no teeth when it comes to enforcing election laws. That's what they want to do to the CFPB. Credit card companies would love that. So would payday lenders and other predatory financial companies. Trump wants to do that across the board, put regulators in place who just won't do their jobs. What he can do is he can start putting people as the chairs of this, that, and the other uh, bureaucratic positions um, where basically they can just sort of, you know, start having a blind eye towards uh, the big banks. So agencies like the CFPB and the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and a whole slew of other regulatory bodies, Trump could just like put in his buddies from Wall Street who won't do a thing to stop banks from doing whatever they want. And then you'll see the 2008 collapse happen all over again, maybe worse this time. Look, he's already doing this. Most of his primary economic advisors, including his Treasury Secretary, are creatures of Wall Street. His cabinet is littered with billionaires. And look, he spelled out exactly why he wants to kill Dodd-Frank. Listen. But we expect to be cutting a lot out of Dodd-Frank because, frankly, I have so many people, friends of mine, that have nice businesses. They can't borrow money. They just can't get any money because the banks... I just won't let them borrow because of the rules and regulations and Dodd-Frank, so we'll be talking about that in terms of the banking industry. Remember, this is the guy who won an election on his promise to drain the swamp. He's doing the exact opposite. He's going to put Wall Street in charge of Wall Street, specifically so his rich friends can get richer. Trump voters should be rioting in the streets over this stuff, look outside your window, you'll notice they're not. It's almost like they were motivated by something other than economic anxiety. 
They sure seem to like that Muslim ban, though, don't they? Let's end, as always, on a lighter note. Like I said before, Trump has no sense of humor. When he tries to make a joke, it's kind of weird, like it falls flat, it's sometimes uncomfortable or awkward. But sometimes, without trying, he makes an unintentional joke, and it is amazing. Like in this tweet from Wednesday, once again, let's go to our Trump tweet correspondent. Big increase in traffic into our country from certain areas, while people are far more vulnerable as we wait for what should... You know what? Uh, let's let's not. Actually, this is kind of inappropriate for an eight-year-old to read. Uh, I- I'm going to do this one. Big increase in traffic into our country from certain areas, while our people are far more vulnerable as we wait for what should be easy D. Yes, Trump suggested we should be waiting around for some easy D. Literally my entire Twitter timeline stopped what they were doing for an hour to make easy D jokes. They suggested that Grindr is a great place to get some easy D. And some people mentioned that all D is, in fact, easy. That's it for another horrible week living with Donald Trump as our president. I want to thank Hunter Blair, the Economic Policy Institute, for talking with me, and of course Isabel, for her star turn as Donald Trump. I also want to thank Paul Waldman, who wrote a story in the Washington Post that pointed me to a lot of these stories. Uh, As always, you can find that story and, and links to all the stories I've covered this week on the website, which is thetrumpscorecard.org. I'd love to hear from you with stories you think I should cover and any tips for how I can make the podcast better. Email me at thetrumpscorecard at gmail.com, and you can always reach me on Twitter at Jesse Burney. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on your podcast app. I hope you have a great week ahead and that it's full of easy D. Easy D! The Trump Scorecard is hosted, written, produced, and edited by me, Jesse Burney. Our music is from bensound.com. I'll be back next week, and remember, this is not normal. Whoa.